Let's read together God's good word found in the Gospel of Mark. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. A world torn apart by war and conflict. Hostages taken. Innocent people murdered. Jerusalem on fire. Cities from Palestine to Lebanon threatened with violence and war. Sounds sort of like today's headlines, doesn't it? But it's the setting for the Gospel of Mark. The first Gospel of the New Testament. That original document formed when, when Christians were just at the beginning laying the foundations of our faith. Everything we know is the New Testament will come from this document. Mark writes at a time when the Jews have risen up against Roman yet again, and they fought the Romans. We sometimes don't realize they had three great wars against the Romans. They were very successful. In one battle alone, in this war, they killed 20,000 Romans. But now the end of that war is coming. Jerusalem is is being torn apart. If I took you to Jerusalem this morning, we would walk along the stones of the temple that still lay on the ground when the temple itself was destroyed. Sanhedrin, the leadership, the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel in those days was driven north to Galilee and, and eventually destroyed there. Everything that people believed in and trusted in and put their faith in had come to an end. The situation was so bad that the Jewish historian Josephus describes it in tears. He was a a, a Jewish general captured by the Romans and became a great historian for the Romans, recording what it was like to be a part of Israel in those days. He writes these words, The Jews, unable to leave the city, were deprived of all hope of survival. Their famine became more intense and devoured whole houses and families. The roofs were covered with women and babies too weak to stand. The streets full of old men already dead. Young men and boys swollen with hunger haunted the squares like ghosts and fell wherever faintness overcame them. Misery knew no weeping or lamentation was heard because hunger stifled every emotion. With dry eyes and grinning mouths, those who were slow to die watched those whose end came sooner. Deep silence enfolded the city and a darkness burdened with death. It's an eyewitness account. The Romans finally defeat the Jews at Masada in 73. There will never again be another Jewish king. 
People had grown up believing in the temple as the place where, where God resided. Jerusalem was God's holy city, and all of that was gone. That's the context for the Gospel of Mark. We've been studying a wonderful book by Dr. Amy Jill Levine called The Gospel of Mark. I've been leading those Bible studies now for a couple of weeks. You can catch them on Sunday morning or Wednesday night if you'd like to be a part of that and go a little deeper in this series about this incredible book we call The Gospel of Mark. The setting is described by her in that book, and uh, the sermon series will be based on that book. We encourage you to maybe get the book and follow along. Dr. Levine points out several important facts about the Gospel of Mark, things you may not know. It's the shortest, and almost all scholars agree now, the first Gospel written. Interestingly, in the Gospel of Mark, there's no birth story. There's no manger scene, no nativity, uh, no angels singing, no shepherds, no wise men. None of those things appear. If you want to put up a Gospel of Mark nativity this Christmas, it's going to be very easy, right? The most reliable manuscripts we have, the oldest manuscripts. In fact, this again, archaeologists just discovered some of the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament, including the Gospel of Mark last week. In those manuscripts, Jesus does not appear after the crucifixion. You may have other endings in your Bible that you see, but they were added later to the Gospel of Mark. Mark doesn't write that. As I mentioned, it was written in roughly 70 A.D. At a time when Jerusalem and the temple have been destroyed. And into this world, Mark writes these words. As he starts his gospel, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how the gospel starts. It's really interesting what Mark does there, because the good news is a phrase, it's a political slogan he borrows from Roman emperors. That's how Roman emperors made proclamations. They would send out officials and they would say, good news, the good news of the emperor. Your taxes have been lowered. Well, probably never that right? We do share some things in common. Your taxes haven't been raised as much as we thought they were going to be, probably. Something more like that, right? Or there's peace in this land, or, or we've conquered that land, or we built a new aqueduct, all in the name of the good news of the emperor. Mark says, of Jesus Christ, the Christos, Christ, the, the, the Greek word for the Hebrew word we know, Messiah, the anointed one, One set apart by God to to bring salvation to the nations. And of course, Mark says, the Son of God. That's the part that that Mark adds to the the old Jewish belief of the Messiah coming. Mark, Mark recreates that in a way for the Christians of his day by adding the Son of God. And that phrase will become incredibly important as, as we see throughout this study, this concept that, that we take for granted, but for them was new, that Christ is the Son of God. Not just a Messiah, not just a Jewish king, not just come to, to free the Jews from the Romans, but the Son of God coming into the world to offer salvation to all. Now, if that sounds a little bit... Like the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, in the beginning God created, right? 
It's supposed to. Mark is, is, is using that language. Most of the early Christians were Jews. And that was, that was one of the first lines in their Bible, in the Torah. In the beginning, God created. And Mark uses that language to talk about the beginning of the story of the good news of Jesus Christ. Karl Barth is considered one of the greatest theologians who, who ever lived. And, and he says it this way. The word beginning in Scripture always implies a specific end. So whenever we see that in the Genesis story, there's an end in mind. And as we see it at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, there's a very specific ending in mind. Everything we're going to hear from those first words, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, is going to point us toward that end. And in this case... The end is the establishment of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Throughout the gospel, Mark wants us to make the decision to shape our lives according to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. What Christ teaches and preaches and the example of Jesus' life. And Mark is going to contrast Jesus' kingdom with the kingdoms of this world and invite us, ask us, demand of us that we make a choice. Mark's gospel will, from the beginning, push us to choose the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's why Mark's gospel doesn't start with a star or singing or angels or any of those things. Think again about about the context of Mark's gospel, right? They're in the middle of a war. Everything they've known, cherished, loved, and believed in is being destroyed. So Mark doesn't start with a nativity scene. Mark starts with a battle. A battle between good and evil. A battle between Jesus and Satan. They're in the middle of a war. They're in the middle of battles. Some of their family members have already been affected. Other family members are are, are going off to fight. So Mark begins there. It begins with this battle between Jesus and Satan. The devil, you might ask? Yes, really. Yeah. One of of the people I know who's a big influence in my life is a preacher named Nadia Bowles-Weber. She's about as different a kind of preacher as as she could possibly be from me and me from her. But I've gotten to know her over the years from from some conferences, and she inspires me, she challenges me, and she pushes me. She would not be someone you would associate with the conservative side of the church, right? But as she was reflecting on the passage we have today in Scripture, she writes these words. For the record, I have very little predilection For thinking about demons or the devil or that whole powers and principalities things. Like a good middle class mainline Protestant. That sounds familiar to me. I tend to arrogantly look down my theological nose as all of it as of it as all superstitious snake handling nonsense. As though it's all the spiritual equivalent of a monster truck rally. Isn't that a great image? Right? And I love monster truck rallies. At best, 
I think all that talk about demonic forces is no more than a result of ignorance and a lack of education. That's how many of us approach those stories about the devil in the Bible. At worst, it's just a way to externalize our own sin because if the devil made me do it, then I don't have to face the reality that perhaps I made me do it. That's what she believed for many years until there was a mass shooting near her church. Two members of her church were shot. She started to rethink her belief about that. She wrote, So I hope you hear me when I say I in no way have any desire to believe in spiritual warfare. Yet, in the last couple of years, I've quietly began to change my ideas about this. Based on the biblical text... In my own experience, I now think that there are indeed forces that seek to defy God in the world. The longer I try to participate in God's redeeming work in the world, the more I am convinced, despite my proclivity towards cynicism, that there are indeed forces that seek to defy God. And nowhere are we more prone to encroaching darkness than when we are stepping into the light. I'm 100% convinced that we're seeing the current conflict happening in the Middle East because we were standing in the doorway of a new peace in the Middle East. And just as, as those forces for good were coming together, the old force of evil raises its ugly head to tear us apart once again. Now, in this setting, before the battle can take place, Mark wants to prepare the one who will fight it, to consecrate Jesus once again, to set Jesus apart as God's chosen and as God's son. You see this uh, interesting place, that's Jordan. We're looking, we're in Israel and we're looking across the Jordan River, into Jordan, the nation. Just a few days ago, protesters came down to this site to cross over and to go into Jordan and go into Israel to protest. Usually there's one sleepy old Jordanian guard there that's even older than me. If they have, if they have social security in Jordan, he's been on it for years, right? And a couple of like Israeli soldiers that look like they're about 14 normally. I'm sure that's all changed. And people come to this site because it's the traditional site of where Jesus was baptized. And it's, it's here, and it's a very interesting place. Because in Scripture, this is where Elijah, the prophet's ministry, begins and ends. He comes back to this place, and his mantle that re- represents him as a prophet is passed on to his protege, Elisha. It's to this Place this crossing in the Jordan where Israel comes into the promised land after they've left the Red Sea, crossed some land. They come here, cross here to go to the city of Jericho. You may remember that story. And it's in this place where a terrified young soldier named Joshua, who had just taken over leadership of the Hebrew children, from Moses, 
It's here that, that early one morning he comes to this spot and he goes out and he looks at the great walls of the city of Jericho, which he's been ordered to take. With his knees knocking, he wonders, how many of us are going to die here in this spot today? How many soldiers am I going to send to their death? And in this spot, he meets the angel that is the commander of all God's armies. And is reassured of the victory. And it is in this spot where John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, was preaching and teaching here, John was baptizing the crowds that came to hear him preach. Some have interpreted John's actions as anti-temple or anti-organized religion, right? Because they were, they were not going to the temple, which was the only house of worship in Israel in those days. They were going out into the wilderness. Dr. Levine points out that's a misunderstanding. People who believe that do not understand Jewish belief or religious practice. In fact, they were, they were renewing their faith, this is the ancient Jewish version of revival. They, they were not leaving the temple. They were renewing themselves so that they could enter the temple and worship God with, with new reborn hearts. Every Sunday we have that opportunity in worship to renew our life and to recommit ourselves to Jesus Christ. That's what they were doing. They were coming to this place. And Dr. Levine goes on to say that, that Jesus' baptism is communal. That is, it's, it's a part of a community experience. It's something Christ does standing with the people. The repentance offered invites the community to support and guide the one who repents. You'll see that in, in our worship services. When someone is baptized or someone joins the church, we always have a statement where we as a community receive them and make our vows to support them. It's a way of recognizing that none of us can do this faith thing alone. And that while Christ stands with us, Christ is often revealed to us by the community around us. Which is why your participation in this community is so essential. That's why we do something very similar when someone is baptized or joins the church. Now, Dr. Levine does something I really appreciate here. She helps us understand that age-old question. If Jesus did not sin, then why did Jesus need to repent? Right? I don't know if you ever struggled with that one, but I can remember being in Sunday school going, wait, what? What? Wait, what? Dr. Levine points out in the Jewish tradition, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, High Holy Day in Judaism. Jews pray, forgive us. Forgive us. So what Jesus is doing is something incredibly powerful, sinless even though he is. He's entered into the world incarnationally to be with us, walk with us, make the journey of faith with us, and bear the burdens we bear right alongside of us. By accepting John's baptism, Jesus can be seen as accepting his role in the human community. We're going to see this vividly demonstrated in, in just a moment in the baptism scene. In other words, Jesus is one of us and one with us. I want to let that sink in for just a moment. This is God... God we talk about in the Apostles' Creed every Sunday if you get here on time. 
right? Creator of everything that there is, who comes to earth to walk among us, be with us, and bear not just the best parts of our life, but bear with us the worst and most broken parts of our life. When I am at my worst, Jesus is most present with me. And when I turn my back on God, God pursues me all the more. Now in this scene, when when Jesus is baptized by John, Mark tells us that, that the heavens are schizo. That is, they're torn apart in this moment. It's an incredible thing when you think about it. Because back then, they believed that, that there was something that separated us from God. You could come close to God in the temple. And if I go today, if I could go this afternoon and stand by those stones fallen from the temple, if I could go to the western wall where you see Jews pray, touch those stones that were laid there so long ago, I would feel very close to God. But Mark is saying something incredible and powerful has happened here. That anything that separates us from God is torn apart and torn away. And there never will be anything ever that can separate us from the presence of God. When I baptize children, I often say, about little babies in particular, God loves you, God loves this baby as much as God ever will, and nothing this child can ever do will separate them from that love. That's what Mark is telling us. Now, the word schizo is very important. Because when we get to the 16th chapter, we get to the end of Mark's gospel, and we're talking about what happens when Jesus is crucified. Mark will use that word again, and he will say that the temple curtain, 60 feet high, three and a half inches thick, hand-woven, the temple curtain, which, which begins with images uh, of water and then images of earth and finally represents the sky filled with hand-woven uh, hand golden stars in that curtain. That, that in the moment that Jesus is, dies from the crucifixion, that curtain will be torn from top, God's part in their belief, to the bottom. That what once separated us from the divine presence is torn apart and is no more. And in this tearing of heaven, described in the baptism scene and in the crucifixion scene, and think about that as probably our worst moment as humanity when Christ is crucified. What does God do? God tears apart anything that might separate us and loves us and embraces us. In that moment when Christ dies on the, cruci- on the cross, our worst moment, God loves us the most. And that great curtain is torn apart. Now the splitting of heaven means that forgiveness is now available to everyone outside of the temple. Everyone. There's no separation now. There's no distinction by age or or religion or nationality or the color of one's skin. Everything is offered to every living person. Dr. Levine says in Judaism, there's a concept of of the bat kol, which is the daughter voice. And I, I love this so much. 
right? Because you may have heard of bat mitzvah and bar mitzvah, bar, son of the testament, son of the scripture, bat mitzvah, daughter of the testaments, right? Special ceremony Jewish children go through, kind of a little bit like our confirmation. So bat, daughter of the voice, daughter's voice, is God's voice coming through someone? You hear their voice. You hear God's voice through someone. In this case, the back quoll, the child's voice, the voice of the child, comes through and is granted to Jesus. You remember the words that God says, right? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, right? And that's symbolized by the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove. From now on, from this moment, as God claims Jesus as his son, go back to verse 1 in the Gospel of Mark, right? In the beginning, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here in the baptism scene, this is my beloved son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, right? That will be lived out now in the Testament, And Mark is not an existentialist, but if he were, if I could push that on him a little bit, his gospel is going to be about identity. It's going to be about knowing our identity. Mark is going to push us to know who we truly are, who God created us to be. And it's going to be about knowing the identity of Jesus Christ And how when we know who Jesus is, that shapes and forms our identity. For any of us who have ever struggled to find our place in the world, here it is. You are God's beloved child. And Jesus Christ is the proof and the evidence that God loves you. Dr. Levine adds, God has ripped heaven like Jews rip a garment in mourning. In the old Jewish tradition, whenever you felt incredibly sad, Jewish folk people, and you read about it in the Bible, would tear their garment as a sign of their great sadness, as a sign of a desire to repent. You may remember the story of Jonah when he finally goes to preach at Nineveh, and the people hear how they've sinned against God. They rip their clothes. It's it's about letting go of the past, recognizing the old hurts, the old places we've fallen short, being honest about that, and being able at God's invitation to move on beyond that. Dr. Levine reminds us that God is present even when we feel most acutely that God is absent. In that moment of brokenness, When we feel at our worst as a human being, Christ stands there with us, ready to take our hand and lead us into new life. So that voice comes down from heaven. You are my beloved, and with you I am well pleased. And God says that about Jesus and about every one of us. In the most dark and difficult of times, Mark reminds people suffering and war and conflict and famine. 
God loves us, and we matter to God. Now, Jesus' identity as God's Son is going to be tested immediately. Remember, no birth narrative here, no manger, no singing angels, none of those things. Jesus is baptized and driven by the Holy Spirit. I think that's such an interesting phrase, driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. You know, because once you allow your life to be set apart, consecrated, set apart, and given to God, once you really do that, then the Holy Spirit is going to have work for you to do. And sometimes that work, that ministry, that mission leads us into the wilderness. Like my experience is most often it does. The Holy Spirit has work for us. God's Spirit will lead us to places where there is need. Sometimes you feel that in your heart. Sometimes you get that by reading or, or listening to a sermon. Sometimes it comes the thing, the, the response time after the sermon when they say, we need six more trunks for trunk or treat, right? That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. You remember in Matthew's story, the temptation, that temptation story, Satan comes to Jesus who's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and says, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God. Always temptation comes to us in the form of trying to break away our identity. Mark's gospel starts with the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In baptism, God says, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. And now Satan comes to Jesus and says, if you are the Son of God, to which Jesus responded, who'd been fasting, Man does not live by bread alone. There's something more that we need in our lives to empower us and strengthen us, and that is our relationship with God. Christ recognizes that and opens that doorway for us so that no matter where we are in life, we have that invitation to have that relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, I know that seems really hard sometimes, particularly when when life is at its hardest. There's a little thing that Mark does in his gospel, the other gospel writers don't do, and I'm so grateful to Mark for it. Only in Mark do we find the story of the angels standing with Jesus, standing with Jesus all 40 days of the temptation. There's never a moment, even when Jesus is in the desert doing battle with Satan, there's never a moment that Christ is left alone. Never. Every single moment, he's being protected, cared for, and loved. Mark wants us to know that even when we're in our wilderness moments, we are never alone. I'm so grateful to Mark for, for that witness. Can you imagine the power of that as those early Christians heard that while Jerusalem was burning and the temple was smoldering and the world they knew was being torn apart? Mark's promise comes that we're never alone. No matter what terrible things we human beings come up with to to do to each other, God is with us. I think that's something very, very important to remember right now. I know there are people who will say things like, this is the end of the world, these are the signs of the end times. Nobody knows that. There have been so many wars in the Middle East, we can't even count them all, right? That doesn't mean it's a sign. 
But what we can count on is that no matter what we face, God is with us. That's what Jesus Christ's life on earth was all about. Now for us, the war in the Middle East feels very personal, and what's been happening in the country feels very personal. This is our oldest daughter, Tiffany, on the right. Next to hers, our granddaughter, Kelsey, our granddaughter, Jordan, and Tiffany's husband, our son-in-law, Andy, who we adore. Andy's Jewish. So our daughter-in-laws are are half-Jewish. Even though they're baptized and confirmed in the church, that's their heritage, and they go to all the holy days with, with Andy's side of the family. They have heard in their hometown, New York, people marching through the streets, chanting, gas the Jews, and carrying swastikas. That's hard. That's hard to hear. It's hard to hear in your own country. It's hard to hear as things like that have happened across the world. At the same time, in Israel, we have so many Jewish friends. This is David Osiel. Some of you will know him if you've been on a mission or have been on a trip to Israel before. David is an amazing and incredible guy. He's a, 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 a veteran of the Jewish IDF, Israeli Defense Force. He's a tour guide. He owns the tour company we use. David and his family are so close to him. We've traveled all over the world with him. I've placed my grandchildren in his hands as he's led them across the world. And, and they just feel like part of our family. David and everybody in his family who are Jewish and live in Israel. At the same time, we have dear friends in the Palestinian territories. Prudy especially loves these friends because of their shop, where she can go and shop, <laughs> right? They live in the West Bank, these Palestinian friends of ours. And, and what you may not understand about that part of the world is that these Palestinians and David, who's Jewish, are great friends. In fact, at one time, a few years ago, when Israel didn't have the Iron Dome and, and, and they were under constant threat of missile attack and missiles were falling and they had really almost no defense against it, our Palestinian friends invited David and his Jewish family to come stay with them in their homes under their protection. We also have dear friends, a family I love and cherish so very, very much. Raphael's, if you're watching, I'm talking about you, who are from Lebanon. And this morning, they're watching their nation once again on the edge of war. And it would be so easy for me to, to imagine, and, and I can't help but dream about all of these folks coming together at, at our table with Prudy and me this Thanksgiving and sitting at our table together. And we would laugh and we would tell stories and, and Prudy and I would bring a turkey, probably not ham, but a turkey, right? And we would, we would have falafel there, even though we don't eat it, we would have it there for them. And everybody would love each other and get together. I'm absolutely sure of that. Well, God has a big table too. Mark taught that God opened heaven and offered his love to everyone. Every child is a beloved child to God. Every child. Do you believe that? Amen, right? And I believe that this church has a special calling to build bridges and make a bigger table. Did you know we average just over three new members every single week of this year so far? It's incredible when you think about it. People have been finding a home here, a spiritual place of refuge and healing. I think just as as Prudy and I have been able to visit with people from all around the Middle East, 
and share fellowship and friendship with them. We have a calling as a congregation to be a place where people are welcome, where people sometimes who are really hurting and have broken hearts can walk in and feel love and be healed and be made new again. And Mark, the ending to Mark's gospel helps me a lot with this, even though it's so controversial. Scholars have been debating it for years. What is the deal? Because you remember, I mentioned it, but, but there's no resurrection appearance of Jesus, not in the original manuscripts. The early Christians knew none of those, those second endings, third endings that you have in your Bible. That was from King James got made popular back then. They didn't have that. Mark's gospel ended in the original way for them. Christ is crucified, laid in the tomb, and women come on the day we call Easter, and they go to the open tomb, and they meet just a young man there, not an angel, just a guy, and he says to them, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, remember Peter denied him three times, and Peter, that he's going ahead of you to Galilee, there you will see him just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. That's probably what I would have done, right? And that's where it ends. That's where the gospel of Mark really ends. And you have to say, wait a minute, pastor, we're here. Somebody must have said something. Somebody that was there in that text That night, as they were laying their head on their pillow, might have looked at their spouse and said, oh, by the way, I was at the tomb today, right? But you have to remember what Jesus himself said. We'll get to this later in the series, but but in the, in, in the, the last supper scene, Jesus says, I will be lifted up. The disciples are told to go to Galilee for a reason, to see the Christ who has been lifted up doesn't appear in the Gospel of Mark in Jerusalem. He appears in Galilee, which is the scene, the setting for ministering to the world. Galilee represents going out and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the world. Jesus says, if you want to see me, don't come to a tomb. Come to the place of ministry and mission. Just a couple of weeks ago, they were digging around in Israel and they, they found a basement. It's near a home they call the Jesus House because some people think it's, it's where Jesus lived once upon a time. These are homes they've found from that period of time when Jesus preached and taught in Jerusalem. They went down and they, they found ossuaries, which are these little boxes where back in those days they would lay the bones of their loved ones. And, and on each of those boxes, there was something very special written. You remember Jesus said, I will be lifted up. If you want to see me come to Galilee, I will be lifted up. Words he took from the prayer of Jonah. When Jonah was delivered from the fish, Jonah said, behold, I was in Sheol. I was in head. I was hell. I was in the place of death. And God lifted me up. So Jesus quotes those words. I will be lifted up after death. So just a couple of weeks ago in Jericho, I mean in Jerusalem, they found these ossuaries of early Christians. And on the, on the boxes that were carved there in Hebrew, the words, God, lift me up. And the symbol of a great fish, the little man coming out. You see, Mark has a reason for ending his gospel this way. 
Because as you read and you study the Gospel of Mark, you begin to understand that Mark is writing another character into the Gospel. There's another, another character there that you need to know and you need to understand their identity and you need to understand their relationship with Jesus Christ and that character is you. You and me. Carlos, Mark wants us to stand before that open tomb and feel the calling to go out and share the good news of Jesus Christ in our world. So here are your action steps. Ask yourself every day, am I living out my baptism? Think about Christ's baptism and our baptism. We're set apart by God to do God's work in the world. Am I caring for the poor? Am I giving hope to the hopeless? Am I representing Christ in all I do? Am I living out my baptism? And then we're asked to do one more thing. To build a bigger table. Think about the places in your life where you need to be more open and more welcoming. Where you need to smile and share your life with people around you. Especially people who may be very different, believe differently than you do, have a different kind of faith than you, or no faith at all. Make your life bigger, make your table bigger. And embrace the people around you because that's what Jesus would do. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.